Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Thanks, uh, Phil. So, Christmas is gone for another year. There you go. The bank balance can breathe again. And you can start getting everything sorted for next year. Because uh, I was amazed the other day just to see how people are in the sales and how determined they are to buy up things that uh, Tesco's and other shops uh, are selling off cheaply. And so people are buying up Christmas cards already for next year. People are already buying their wrapping paper. And I dare say some people are already buying But it's gone. And uh, New Year will soon be here and there'll be another lot of uh, celebrations to be had. And I dare say you'll probably be getting together with family and friends. Do you know what your custom is? We're getting together with my sister. The first thing she said to us, you will be watching Jules Holland. How many of you like Jules Holland on New Year's Eve? Yeah, great. It's great. I love it. It's absolutely brilliant. So it's, uh, it's coming and that will be it. But it's a strange time now between Christmas New Year and the kind of start of everything coming back for a new term. Next Sunday, January the 6th, is traditionally known as Epiphany Sunday. It's not really something we go in for a lot as nonconformists. It's actually one of the oldest Christian feasts in the Christian calendar. And Christians remember in particular the visit of the wise men, the magi, uh, to see the infant Jesus. And you may remember, if you've been with us over this Christmas period, we looked at this a little bit the other week when we noticed in particular that for Matthew, the whole thing about the visit of the wise men, the magi, to see the infant Jesus, that is a big, big thing. And I just want to go back to that incident, really. So if you've got your Bible, there is a Bible at the end of every pew, or maybe you've got a Bible app, why don't you open it up to Matthew chapter 2 and just 
Come with me on a little bit of a journey through this passage as we really look at five things that help us to see that here you have a real insight into the issue of worship and just what it means to worship Jesus. So I want to explore those things with you a little bit this morning. The five things that we're going to see, just to give you a bit of a heads up, uh, we're going to see that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the King of the Jews, and should be honoured and worshipped as such. That's something clearly in that text, as you read through it, you'll see that everybody's recognising that he's the King of the Jews, and he should be worshipped and honoured as such. The second thing we see is that Jesus is to be worshipped not just by Jews, but all the nations of the world. That's represented by the wise men themselves, because they are foreigners. They come from the east to see the child. The third thing we see is that God's great underlying work behind the sending of his only son into the world is that his son Jesus be known, acknowledged, and worshipped. That's a key thing. The fourth thing we see is that Jesus is troubling to people who don't want to worship him. And so he brings out opposition for those who do. And we look around the world, we see this. And we see it even sadly in our own country today. I'll say a little bit more about that later on. The fifth thing I want us to note this morning is this. Worshipping Jesus means joyfully surrendering authority and dignity to him with sacrificial gifts. And one of the key words there is joyfully. So I want you to have a word in your face just as we go on. Okay, because some of us look as if we've been baptised in lemon juice, and we just need to be a little bit more, hey! So, let's explore these a little bit uh, this morning. The first thing, then, is this. Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and he needs to be honoured and worshipped as such. That's a key thing in this passage. In verse 2, the wise men, the magi, announce very clearly just what all the fuss is about why they've come such a vast distance. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? This is about a newborn child destined to be king. Now in itself, perhaps that wouldn't be a very great thing. If you think about it for a moment, somewhere in Britain today, there are probably three or four children or young people under the age of 18 who are going to be prime minister one day. I prayed in our prayers earlier, didn't I? There may be a child in our Sunday school. Whatever your party political colours are right now, if there was a child from our Sunday school who became prime minister one day, you'd be a little bit proud, wouldn't you? There could be. We just don't know. So the idea that somebody was a newborn child destined to be king of the Jews, that in and of itself wasn't that much a big deal. Nobody really cared about that. We don't set out, do we, to find out if one of these kids in our Sunday school could be destined to be Prime Minister. If we found out maybe that they were, or we had a hunch that they were going to be, what would we start to do? Do you think we'd start to revere them? Do you think we'd start to try and shape their political policies? Would we bring them gifts? Would we buy them more Lego than the world has ever seen? I don't know. What would we do? But verse 4 makes it very clear what the Magi really mean when they speak about the King of the Jews. 
And it's not just the Magi. If you look at closely at verse 4, Herod knew as well, didn't he? Herod brought together the chief priests and the teachers of the law of Moses and asked them, where will the Messiah be born? Now they've come looking for the king of the Jews. The thing that's now being addressed is, well, where is the Messiah going to be born? As we saw the other Sunday, you'll remember that Herod had been called king of the Jews by the Senate in Rome for over 40 years. No one referred to this guy as the Messiah. No, no, he's king, not Messiah. Messiah carries with it this idea of the long-awaited God-anointed ruler who's come to overcome all other rule and bring an end of history and establish the kingdom of God. A Messiah figure would come and he'd never die. His reign would never stop. And as soon as Herod hears about the king of the Jews, his mind goes to Messiah. He brings together the chief priests and teachers of the law of Moses and asks them, where will the Messiah be born? Herod got the message. These magi aren't searching for a mere ordinary human successor to him. They're searching for the final king, the king to end all kings. And of course, unlike Anna and Simeon in Luke chapter 2, this is the last thing Herod wants. And so he asks the scribes, what's it all about? And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you remember the text that they focus on. It's there in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Bethlehem Ephrath, you are the one of the smallest towns in the nations of Judah, but the Lord will choose one of your people to rule the nation, someone whose family goes back to ancient times. Now, that doesn't sound very extraordinary either, does it? The reason is, the only purpose for which the scribes quoted the text, of course, was to answer Herod's question. His question was, where is this king, this Messiah, to be born? The answer, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Bethlehem. Can you imagine if Herod had asked them, well, who is he? Who is he? They might have read a bit wider in Micah chapter 5, actually. In verse 2, but the Lord will choose one of your people to rule the nation, someone whose family goes back to ancient times. One of the translations actually puts that as goes back to eternity. And then in verse 4, like a shepherd taking care of his sheep, this ruler will lead and care for his people by the power and glorious name of the Lord his God. His people will live securely and the whole earth will know his true greatness because he will bring peace. This king isn't just arriving on the world stage like an unannounced little baby. He has history. And it stretches back, Micah wants us to understand, into ancient times, into eternity past. I think this is what John was trying to pick up when he wrote his gospel and he talks about Jesus. Remember, he doesn't bother with any of the birth narrative. He just goes straight in. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. This guy has history. This is about eternity past. This is Jesus 
who was there with God at the beginning. And this king isn't going to be limited. This king isn't going to be limited in his realm. The whole earth is going to know about this king and his true greatness. No wonder the wise men arrive and they want to worship him. This is serious. They want to worship him, adore him, honor him. And that leads us into the second truth that I raised for you a moment ago in this passage about the Messiah. The second thing is this. Jesus, okay, he's the Messiah, the King of the Jews. He should be honored and worshipped. We've seen that. But he's to be worshipped not just by Jews, but by all the nations of the world. We see that in the fact that these wise men have come from the East. You notice that Matthew doesn't tell us about the shepherds. He's not interested in that. Leaves that to Luke. His focus is on the fact that these guys are foreigners. They have come from a long way away. They've come from the east to worship Jesus. When Jesus was born in the village of Bethlehem in Judea, Herod was king. During this time, some wise men came from the east to Jerusalem and said, where is the child to be the king of the Jews? We saw a star in the east and have come to worship him. So Matthew's Gospel portrays Jesus right at the beginning of his life here on earth. It's interesting, if you flip right over to the end of Matthew's Gospel, you'll see it there at the end of the story of Jesus' life here on earth as well. He wants us to understand that the Messiah figure is a universal figure, that he is for all the nations, not just for the Jews. These foreign astrologers, these wise men from Babylon, have come a long way. They were Gentiles. They weren't squeaky clean Jews. They weren't scribes and Pharisees from the temple. No, no. They were unclean. And it's interesting that at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of what? All nations, not just the Jews. So right here at the beginning, there's this acknowledgement that this king, this Messiah, this long-promised-for Messiah within the Jewish custom and tradition, it has so much more to offer to the world. And then at the end of the Gospel, bless you, we see that picked up on. Go and make disciples of all nations. It's really important for us to grasp this. Because the danger is that if you're just checking out this Christianity stuff, you will think that this Jesus figure is primarily a Jewish historical figure. And then you'll fail to grasp how immediately the gospel writers want us to understand he's on the world stage. This isn't just a Jewish story with Jewish implications. This is a story for the whole world, which has implications for you and me. The door for Gentiles to rejoice in the Messiah is open wide. The likes of you and me. You don't need to be a Jew. You don't need to have been born in a particular country. But if you're born in Wales, it helps. You don't need to have been born under a particular tradition. Here's the proof. The Messiah, the Savior of the world, has come for everyone. 
one of the repeated prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah was that the nations and kings of the world would come to him and acknowledge him as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's that lovely passage in Isaiah chapter 60. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Matthew wants us as his readers to know from the off that this Jesus, born in Bethlehem, is the Messiah, a king, the promise fulfiller for all the nations, not just for Israel, for us, not just for the Jews. You may not have a particularly good pedigree. You may have been told that you're the runt of the litter, that you are a disappointment to your family. I need you to understand, it is critical here this morning, None of that counts. Jesus has come to be king. Your king. My king. Whatever your lineage, whatever your ancestry, whatever race, creed, color, it doesn't matter. We are one in Christ Jesus. There is no Jew or Gentile, slave or free. No, no. There is no Welsh or English. There is no black or white. There is no Chinese or Afghanistan. No, no. We are one in Christ. The Messiah is the king before whom everyone worships as one. The third thing is this. God's great underlying work behind the sending of his son into the world is that his son be known, acknowledged, and worshipped. That's what God wants more than anything else. Over and over again, the Bible baffles things for us. We have a curiosity about how things happen in the Bible. I don't know about you, but you know, I, I love theories, and I love looking at, ooh, why did this happen, and how could that have happened? And sometimes my little mind can't cope with it all. And I go down rabbit holes, really. I mean, how did the star, for instance, you ever thought about this? How did the blinking star... Get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem. How did that work? And by the way, if you look closely at the text, it never says that it led them. It never says that it went before them. What it says is, they saw the star. That's what it says. They saw the star in the east and have come to worship. And I've read widely on this subject. And some of the rubbish I have read, Dave will bear me out on this, there is some nonsense, theories, about how this star led them, as if they were like, oh, the star, the star, it's going this way now, we must go this way. You can imagine, is that, is that were they just a bunch of lemons who, who just followed it and pursued it like that? Is, that? is that the way it worked? How did the star, there's another question for you, how did the star go before them in that little five-mile jaunt down from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Because verse 9 says, the star they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. How does that work? That's an interesting one. Did it come down and they were like, oh, there's the tip. We can follow the tip. Be okay. When they get to Bethlehem, is it like those lovely Christmas cards you see where all the other buildings have gone? And there's just this manger, isn't there, with this star that's like an arrow going, 
Is that what it was? Because if they were in a built-up area, they'd been going around going, boys, I think, I think it's this one. Hello? Nobody in that one. Must be this one, boys. Try this one. They weren't quite sure where it was staying. How does it work? I'll tell you a little secret, shall I? I ain't got a clue. There you go. I haven't a clue. We don't know. There are numerous efforts to explain it in terms of conjunctions of the planets and comets and supernovas and miraculous lights. The truth is, we don't know. And I, do you know what conclusion I've come to? I don't care. I don't think it's got anything to do with it. There is, what spiritual significance is there in that? I'll tell you what I do know. It's plain. Concerning this matter of the star, it's doing something it can't do by itself. Somehow it is guiding Magi to worship Jesus. How? Don't know. I mean, I don't understand a lot of things in life. Thermonuclear dynamics being one of them. GPS systems, I haven't got a clue. Now, there will be those of you sat here who have engineering backgrounds and electronics backgrounds, and you'll understand a lot of things, and you will be very, very clever. But do you know how this worked? Because I'm yet to meet somebody who can say, well, yes, it's easy. It doesn't make sense. There's only one person in biblical thinking that can be behind that intentionality in the stars. God. Can't explain it. The lesson's plain. God's guiding foreigners to Bethlehem to worship his son Jesus. That's what we're to see in this passage. He's doing it by exerting global, okay, universal influence and power to get it done. Luke shows us, for instance, God influencing the entire Roman Empire so that a census comes at the exact time to get a virgin to Bethlehem to fulfill a, promise, uh, a prophecy with her deliverer. Matthew shows us God influencing the stars in the sky to get foreign magi to Bethlehem so they can worship him. This is God. This is God at work. I can't always explain God. There's no easy formula. You know the wonderful thing? He did it back then. He's still doing it today. Because I still can't explain him today. Because he does some amazing things, doesn't he? How many of you sat in this room have experienced that? God doing stuff. You can't explain it. But he did it. His aim here is that all the nations come to worship his son. We know in Matthew's gospel that this is a critical thing. Only when that's happened will everything finally find conclusion. So, in Matthew 24, when the good news about the kingdom has been preached all over the world and told to all nations, the end will come. That's why I want to be involved in mission. Because the more we do mission, the more we do evangelism, the quicker he's coming. That's what we need to do. We need to be looking seriously at these things. This is God's will for everybody in your office. This is God's will for everybody in your neighborhood. This is God's will for everybody in your family that they come to worship Jesus. John 4, 23, a time is coming. It's already here. Even now the true worshipers are being led by the Spirit to worship the Father according to the truth. These are the ones the Father is seeking to worship 
at the beginning of Matthew, we still have something of a come and see pattern. But at the end of the gospel, as I've shown you, the pattern is you go, tell. The Magi here are coming, they're seeing, but we are to go and tell. That's why in 2019, church, we are going to have a major emphasis on mission and evangelism. We are not just going to be here doing attractional stuff, expecting people to come to us. No, 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 no. We're going to have to go. We're going to have to take the good news with us. What's not changed at all in that is the purpose of God, you see. The intention of God is that Jesus, his son, be known, acknowledged, worshipped, through the gathering of people in white-hot worship. That's what it's about. John writes those lovely words in Revelation 7. Got to do a series on this. Verse 7. Where is it? Oh, I didn't put it in. Dash it all. Let me read it. After this, I saw a large crowd with more than could be counted. They were from every race, tribe, nation, and language. And they stood before the throne and before the Lamb. They wore white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And as they shouted, our God, who sits upon the throne, has the power to save his people. And so does the Lamb. The angels who stood around the throne knelt in front of it with their faces to the ground. The elders and the four living creatures knelt there with them. They all worshipped God and said, Amen, praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, power, and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. See, they were from every race, tribe, nation, and language. God wants people to acknowledge his son. Do you acknowledge his son? As this year comes to a close, I want to ask you seriously, do you acknowledge him? Do you acknowledge Jesus for who he really is as the king the king of kings the lord the lord of lords the savior the messiah the one who is worthy of our worship two things briefly in closing the fourth thing i want you uh, to see is this i'm totally out of sync with these now aren't i but there we go the thing is Jesus is troubling to people. We need to remember that. People who don't want to acknowledge Jesus, people who don't want to worship him, well, that's okay. But as we see around the world today, unfortunately combined with that, there are those who will persecute those who do want to worship Jesus. And you may get an element of this in your own family or in your own workplace. If you have said, quite openly, that you're a Christian, it may be that people in your family take the mick out of you. Bible basher. People at work have a go at you about things that you don't participate in. Maybe you watch your language far more than other work colleagues. Whatever it is, it's true, isn't it, that for some people, there is very real opposition to their faith. There are people today in parts of the world that are languishing in prisons because they have dared to confess Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. In 2018, there are people who have been murdered, martyred for their faith. There are people 
being starved because they dare to worship God. This is the reality of the world in which we live. Now, I'm not saying that is the main point here in, in Matthew. I, I don't think he's focusing on that, but you can't ignore it. Because as you go through this story, there are certainly two kinds of people who don't want to worship Jesus as the Messiah. The first kind are the people who simply do nothing. They're not, they're not bothered by Jesus. Do you know people like that? He's a non-entity in their lives. That's, that group, ironically, in the passage, is represented by the chief priests and the scribes. I mentioned this the other week. You just look at them there in verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Why do I highlight them? Well, they have an answer and they do nothing. Think about that for a moment. Jewish religious leaders, they knew where to look straight away when he was asking the question about where, where is this king, this Messiah to be born. They, they knew where to go, but they did nothing. Nothing at all. It would be like a bunch of Christians meeting together for Sunday worship Acknowledging Jesus Christ as Lord, knowing that eternity is, is sure for them, and never going and telling anybody else. Hmm. Bad, isn't it? But that's exactly what the scribes and Pharisees do. They're not concerned. They told him. They pointed out to him. But it was back to business as usual. Their sheer silence and inactivity is overwhelming. The magnitude of what is happening, and yet they don't give two hoots. Notice verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. We looked at this the other Sunday. I don't want to have to go over it again, but the rumor was going around that someone thought the Messiah was born, and the chief priests do nothing. Staggering. Why don't they go with the Magi? They're just not interested. They don't want to worship the Messiah they've been waiting for. So when I appeal to you, and Pastor Tim appeals to you in 2019, that we're going to do mission together, and we're going to do evangelism together, will you be one of those that shows no interest? This is serious stuff. It's easy to be religious in this building, isn't it? The doors nicely locked, coffee brewing, having it shortly, it's okay. Is that what this is about? Or does what we have and understand and know truly affect the way we want to do life and communicate to other people? These guys weren't interested. Second kind of people who don't want to worship Jesus are the kind who are deeply threatened by him. In this uh, picture, of course, it's Herod, isn't it? He is petrified. He is quaking. So much so that he schemes and lies and commits mass murder just to try and get rid of Jesus. You do realize that's what he does, don't you? 
So today, both these kinds of opposition will come against Jesus and his followers. We see it in the world in which we're living. That's why, as a church, I'm thrilled that we support organizations like Tier Fund and BMS World Mission that directly get involved with persecuted Christians. The leprosy mission work, we've seen it to a certain extent. Many Christians suffering from leprosy get persecuted. Again, we're able to support them and help them. Both kinds of opposition come, indifference and hostility. I hope that 2019 will be a time when we reconsider the Messiah and ponder what it means to worship him. Let me close with this. The fifth and final thing that I want us to see. Worshipping Jesus means joyfully surrendering authority and dignity to him with sacrificial gifts. I think there are four things for us to really see in that little statement I've made there. Four things that help us understand something about worship that are grounded, really, in this particular text in Matthew. See, the first thing I want you to see here is that the Magi, the wise men, surrendered. They ascribed authority to Jesus. They acknowledged him to be king, king of the Jews. That's what they said, isn't it? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? It's very important. We have to recognize Jesus for who he is. And I want to challenge you. Do you? He's king. The second thing here, the Magi surrendered or ascribed dignity to Jesus by falling down before him. Remember that beautiful verse, verse 11? After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. It's interesting, isn't it, when some famous footballers score a goal. They fall on their knees. Some of them who have a faith will acknowledge God. In our culture, by and large, the idea of falling down prostrate like that isn't something we're familiar with. Prostrating ourselves before God, well, we just don't do that. There's something very powerful, I think, in this text, that when they come and they see the child, they fall to the ground and worship him. Can I say to you, if at times you see me prostrate in the chapel in prayer, don't be alarmed. But I've been really challenged by this text, personally. I will make no apology for falling to my knees. I will make no apology for prostrating myself. You may be uncomfortable with it, but frankly, I'm playing to an audience of one. And here I see an acknowledgement of Jesus as King and as Lord, and it prompts a response that is beautiful. It's saying, isn't it, you are high and lifted up and I am low. You have great dignity and I am lowly in comparison. Third thing, see here? I said to you earlier, look at the joy. The joy that there is 
Worshipping Jesus means joyfully surrendering. It's brilliant. Some of us are so sad in worship. Some of us, I tell you, I don't know how Pastor Tim feels, but I look out on you on a Sunday, and I'm getting excited, and I'm starting to sweat, and I'm starting to think, hey, here we go! And you're like this. Now, please don't misunderstand me. But there's got to be some joy. I loved it, Steve and I, and uh, uh, Viv and uh, Louise, uh, we were in worship in Africa, and they took up the offering. Wow, Steve, remember that? They were dancing. I'm going to try that one Sunday with you lot. I really am. See whether we can dance and sing and have some joy when we take up the offering. Now, you'll come back at me, but that's not our culture. It's not what we do. Well, let's be countercultural. Let's be biblical. Let's look at the excitement these people see. They were thrilled and excited, Matthew tells us, to see the star. Why? Because they were going to see the Messiah. When's the last time you came to chapel thrilled and excited? Don't answer that, please. Do you come to church on a Sunday thinking, Whoa, can't wait, Pastor Tim's preaching, what's he going to say? Oh! No, no, you come here like that. All right, that was it that way. Oh, have you got the other sweets today? Holy mints. Oh, who's on teas and coffees? Won't get nice biscuits with them, no. I hear it all. Come on. There's something wonderful here. They're excited. They're almost there. True worship isn't just about acknowledging Jesus, not even just surrendering or ascribing authority or dignity to him. It's about being joyful as we do it. Doing it because you've come to see something wonderful about Jesus that is so overwhelmingly compelling. Friends, we've come to the end. The fourth part, final part, of our definition of worship here is that we do it Surrendering and ascribing Jesus with our gifts. Worship costs. You may think that you know why we take an offering on a Sunday. You may have your own particular views about why we do it in the way that we do it. You may think that it's just about keeping this place going and paying Pastor Tim and me, making sure that there's coffee and stuff. And to a certain extent, I've got to be honest with you, yeah, it is. It is about all of that. But it's also crucially about what's going on in our hearts. Because as we take up our offering on a Sunday, it is about worshipping Jesus. These gifts given by the Magi aren't some kind of royal care package. These gifts demonstrate worship. When you give a gift to Jesus like this, it's a way of saying, you really are my treasure, Lord. And so when the offering plate comes around on a Sunday, I, I hope that it nags at you as to why you're doing what you're doing. Because it is about surrendering to him and saying, Lord, you matter to me. And I'll be able to tell you what matters to you if you show me your bank statement and your visa statement. Because you can guarantee it. You look at mine, it'll show you what's important to me. 
So we need to be challenged by that. The wise men came and they brought treasures. They brought gifts. It cost them. So hey, Christmas is over. New Year's nearly here. And we'll get on. But I'm looking forward to 2019. It's going to be a great year. It's going to be a year filled with passionate evangelism. Making Jesus known in Risca. And whatever opposition we find, okay, fine, bring it on. Because we'll fall to our knees and we'll worship and we'll pray. And can I encourage you to come to the prayer meetings at the start of the year, please? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Let's begin together. And let's bring our hearts and our skills and our abilities and our tithes and our offerings. And let's acknowledge him and worship him. And give him all the glory. Amen.